Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Dana Dennis. I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel, and today I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Bianca Williams about her book, The Pursuit of Happiness, Black Women, Diasporic Dreams, and the Politics of Emotional Transnationalism from Duke University Press. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, everyone, and I'm here with Dr. Bianca Williams to talk about her book, The Pursuit of Happiness. Black Women, Diasporic Dreams, and the Politics of Emotional Transnationalism from Duke University Press. Um, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you to the listeners for taking the time to uh, learn about my work. Appreciate it. Um, I can promise our listeners this is going to be time well spent. This is a really great book, and I enjoyed reading it. And hopefully, after you get a chance to listen to this interview, you will enjoy reading it as well. Um, So, Bianca, I just wanted to start out by asking you the question we always ask on the New Books Network, which is, how did you come to write this book? Um, So, I've always been super interested in race and the power of racism. Ever since I was very little, I was kind of obsessed with learning about enslaved Africans and the Holocaust and just how racism operates. Um, And then growing up as African-American and Jamaican within a Jamaican family, I was always intrigued by diaspora and kind of the different experiences that Black folks have within community. Um, So my interest in diaspora and diasporic diversity led me to this project. I went to Jamaica um, to meet um, Jamaicans and figure out how African-Americans and Jamaicans kind of experience Blackness similarly and differently. And I came across this fabulous group of African-American tourists um, from Girlfriends Tours International, um, but also part of this website called Jamaicans.com. And I just wanted to know what was going on with them. Um, they were living their best lives out there. They were having such fun. And I just realized how much Um, their experiences in Jamaica were so different from the stereotypes around Black women that were kind of prominent back in the U.S. And so the girlfriends led me to my study of happiness, which I actually didn't know I was studying happiness until I got back with my ethnographic data at home. Um, I thought I was studying race and diaspora and kind of racism. Um, But when I looked at the data, um, happiness and affective experiences really wrung out um, from the women and their stories. So I ended up doing a multi-sided ethnography in multiple cities in the U.S., in Jamaica, and on a virtual website, um, and trying to figure out what was going on with diasporic connections and happiness as a political project. Thanks so much. That's a really great summary of the book. Um, I was thinking about just before this interview, I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't think I've ever read an anthropological monograph that actually uses a phrase from uh, the Declaration of Independence in its title, right? The Pursuit of Happiness. But I think your book does such an awesome job of showing how um, for Black women, for Black American women, the pursuit of happiness is such a different and such a particular project that um, that impels their travel to Jamaica. And I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. What does happiness mean for them? And why do they have to go to Jamaica to find it? Mm-hmm. 
So um, I chose to have part of the title, The Pursuit of Happiness, because I really wanted to draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, it is in the Constitution. And in theory, all of us who are citizens, in quotes, <laughs> of this country, or maybe residents of this country, are supposed to be able to have access to resources and a life that allows us to pursue happiness. And for so, you know, for generations since the beginning of this country, um, there are so many marginalized folks who don't have equitable or equal access to that pursuit. Um, and also the book title and, and the book itself is kind of talking about um, not only the ways that so many people are, are kind of systemically and systematically kept out of that pursuit, but that happiness itself is not a destination, but a verb. Like it's a process, right? Particularly for Black women. Um, and so for these African-American women, I'm um, traveling to Jamaica I think the ethnography really gives you some insight into how um, the process of trying to get to a space where they can experience happiness is requires a lot of sacrifice, um, requires a lot of effort. Um, they literally have to leave this nation's borders in order to pursue that that <laughs> the happiness um, as Americans. Um, and so for them, going to Jamaica was about getting to a, a country that was predominantly Black um, to escape American racism, particularly white American racism. It was getting to a place that um, they think of as kind of a Black paradise uh, where they can kind of lay their burdens down. They can experience the ocean and the greenery and just the beautiful geography of Jamaica, um, but also where other Black folks can make them visible, right, in ways that they feel invisible in the U.S. So to feel seen and heard and understood in particular ways um, to be made desirable, right? These are a lot of the women that I worked with were um, women in their late 40s through early 60s. And so generationally just felt like in the U.S. it wasn't a place where um, the U.S. wasn't a place where Black women, older Black women were really valued and respected. So in Jamaica, they could be seen for their Blackness. They could be seen as desirable Black women and live full sexual, intimate, and social lives. That's great. So those are the sort of dreams that are impelling these trips. Um, but I'm curious, like when they get to Jamaica, um, your book tells us about some ways in which those dreams are fulfilled, fulfilled and some ways in which those dreams are frustrated or challenged a little bit. So can you tell us about some of those frustrations or challenges that these women would encounter on their trips to Jamaica? Sure. Um, it's really difficult for me to talk to anyone about my research without how, to, um, <laughs> how Stella got her groove back not coming up, um, which yes. was a very popular film and movie in the 90s. I was actually inspired to go watch the film by reading the book because I'd never seen it. And I, then I was like, oh, now I see what you're talking about. Awesome. Um, yeah, when I give talks, um, when I've given talks in the past year about it, I forget. Like Most of the students have never even heard about this. They know the saying. They know the saying about how to get your groove back, but they've never seen the movie or anything. And I just realized we've kind of aged <laughs> in a particular way. But Stella was this massive success um, in the 90s, uh, both the book, the fiction book and the film. Um, the book by Terry McMillan was really about, and it was semi-autobiographical. It was about a woman, a professional Black woman in her 40s who goes to Jamaica and falls in love with a 20-something um, Jamaican man. And I mean, droves of African-American women were reading this book and seeing this film. And then it was encouraging them to kind of go to Jamaica on their own and really travel. I mean, so many Black women, because of the responsibility that they have in our community to be the backbone, to raise the families, to 
kind of be the central stable anchor of the Black community um, through their experiences of, you know, trauma and suffering and pain um, throughout U.S. history, there's not a lot of time for them to prioritize leisure and recreation and kind of themselves. Um, And so um, this film told them that they had permission to do so. So these dreams are, these African-American tourists I study, their dreams are very much influenced by the book and the movie. They go to some of the places in the book. Um, And where the frustration or challenges come in is that there's a lot of assumptions about the Black folks in Jamaica being just like the Black folks in the U.S., right? Um, And so many times there is a, there's a, a, a mirroring back or like a maybe turning the gaze onto themselves. Um, they begin to understand what privilege looks like attached to their nationality. So American privilege, um, they begin to understand the significance of kind of economic privilege or the assumed economic privilege that they have. Um, so there's moments of challenge around privilege and power um, that they have access to as African-Americans in this Jamaican space. Um and how they how they become aware of that is I, I talk about them traveling with diasporic heart. And so it was really important for them to um, get American dollars in the hands of Jamaicans. They were very intentional about where they stayed. So they stayed at locally owned hotels. They supported local drivers for transportation. Um, they constantly tried to understand that as African-Americans who were somewhat privileged in this kind of global Black economy, um, they could use their American dollars to help their diasporic kin. But at the same time, Jamaican folks constantly told them that they were privileged and that they weren't just like them and they weren't just Black just like us. You know, So there was this kind of tension between the dream and the reality. Yeah, I thought that was such an important and interesting part of this book to see that Um, these women often are coming with a sort of expectation of kinship and a desire to really build that kinship through giving back, as you say. Um, But then they realize that there's a lot of differences between themselves and the people that they're encountering. So I think for folks who study diaspora um, outside of Jamaica or the context of the U.S., but really diaspora anywhere, your book really highlights why it's an important thing to focus on not just similarities in diasporic communities, but also those really important differences that come into play. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about those relationships that form um, between the women themselves on the girlfriend's tour? And then um, maybe after that, you could talk a little bit more about the relationships between these Black women tourists and the Jamaican men and women whom they encounter in their travels. Um, So there's two, there's kind of two different uh, sets of relationships that are being created on this tour. One is the relationship between the girlfriends themselves. And so um, most of the girlfriends, and again, as members of this kind of virtual website, this larger website, are from all over the U.S. And so um, their trips to Jamaica really allowed them to connect to one another and meet one another. Sometimes they had never met face-to-face before. And so as girlfriends, they were... um, really being able to validate and affirm and see one another for the experiences that they were having in the U.S. So there's this girlfriendship that's created amongst them. Um, and then they would say that their desire um, to go to Jamaica was to connect to Jamaican folks. Again, this idea that Jamaican folks were just like them, or at least I sport kin in these d- deep ways. But within the context of capitalism, that, you know, 
influences everything we do in the world um, because we're part of this global economic system. And in the context of hospitality tourism or sex tourism or romance tourism, whichever label you want to use, it's pretty difficult to um, connect with folks without power dynamics being present. And so um, I don't want to give the whole book away, but there's definitely controversy that shows up uh, within these emotional and sexual and intimate relationships between um, African-American women and Jamaican men and Jamaican women. And I think, I hope what the, what the book does is um, do a good job of showing that these kind of simplistic binaries we often have of oppressor and oppressed or exploited and person who is exploiter um, is, are more complex that, um, you know, in this story, African-American women gain access to a significant amount of agency because of their nationalized privilege and presumed class privilege. Jamaican men have a pretty significant amount of gendered privilege in these connections. And then Jamaican women um, are oftentimes privileged in the sense that they understand how romance and and sex tourism works in Jamaica. They've had to understand that. Um, And so they become strategic in how they place themselves in that situation. Um, but in the end, a lot of the African-American women come to ter- or begin to have to come to terms with the fact that uh, their presence in Jamaica and their participation um, in the tourist industry actually makes Jamaican women invisible in the same for the same reasons why they're trying to leave the U.S., right? And so in some ways, they're being implicated in something that they are seeking um, refuge from. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated situation. And yet... Um, for a lot of the women that you're writing about, even though they may go to Jamaica and find that their their dreams are being challenged or complicated in certain ways, um, many of them find themselves going back to Jamaica continually over the course of years, which I thought was a really interesting feature of the ethnography. I think maybe sometimes when we think about the anthropology of tourism, we think about it as sort of like, okay, you know, people leave their home, they go to a place, and that's the whole event. But really what you're describing here is a, a situation where there's, for many people, certainly not for everyone, but for many people, there's a very long um, history of connection with Jamaica as a place that they create through um, these repeated trips. Um, and I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the term that you used for it. I think it was a um, transnational emotional field, if, if that's right. Emotional transnationalism, right? Um, yes, yes. Emotional transnationalism. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that concept? It is the part of the title of the book, the politics of emotional transnationalism. Uh, so, right. how does that work? Um, so, Diane Wolf actually coins the term emotional transnationalism in 1997 in her research, and I had been searching for a word that kind of could act as a container for all the dynamic, sometimes contradictory things that were happening in these women's stories and in their experiences. And when I saw emotional transnationalism, it just kind of spoke to me because I thought it gave enough space to to contain all of this. Um, And so what's happening is, um, again, these women are deeply invested in Um, contributing to a diasporic experience and connecting to diasporic kin. And so, you know, we can talk about the kind of politics of what what Africa is showing up here. But for them, um, there's this idea that transatlantic slave trade and the history of it really does connect them to Jamaican peoples and that Jamaica in some way is kind of a a practice Africa, um, that if they can manage 
Jamaica, then one day they can also make it back home to the continent. Um, and that Jamaicans are kind of a, 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 have a deeper sense of African history um, because of their location in the diasporic kind of transatlantic slave trade. So there's a long history of that. Emotional transnationalism allowed me to place their experiences and their stories within the almost 40 years of um, significant research on transnationalism, which has focused on migrants and people in exile from their original homes um, who have to create home in multiple places. And while these are definitely tourists who are not necessarily under the same um, duress as migrants or people who have to flee their homes in order to um, make a home somewhere else because of you know significant war or political situations, I did think that these tourists are not... Um, your regular kind of everyday tourists who are just going somewhere else to make somewhere else their playground, they really do believe that um, the geographic and virtual movement from the U.S. to Jamaica um, is required of them in order for them to maintain sanity and wellness at home in order to make it through the kind of trauma of racism and sexism and even ageism in the U.S. These trips to Jamaica allow them to censor themselves, to be anchors for one another, to have an emotional wellness um, that allows them to go back home and be okay. Um, And so emotional transnationalism allows us to understand that it's not only people and goods and ideas that cross national borders, but there's emotions that are attached to those things as they move across um, national spaces. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how they maintain those connections to Jamaica and that emotional um, sense of being okay, being centered, being happy when they're back in the United States. I think this connects a little bit to um, the the research that you did on the message boards on the Jamaicans.com website, right? Right. So um, I did multi-sided research because I wanted to know uh, two things. How was it for some of the folks in Jamaica when these tourists left the tourist space? And then how was it at home in the U.S. um, with these tourist family members and their kind of their everyday experience in the U.S.? And so I ended up going to different um, cities in the U.S., I think Memphis and Fort Lauderdale and D.C. and different places where they lived and kind of doing very short visits at home. Um, and um, what I found was they stayed connected to each other, usually through the phone um, and through the website, jamaicas.com. This is kind of pre-social media being what we know it to be now. This is almost 15 years ago. So Facebook existed, but we didn't use it in the same way. We didn't, Twitter didn't exist. And so they were using the website as a space where they could stay connected to each other and stay connected to folks in Jamaica and stay connected to the idea and the imagining of Jamaica itself. Um, so the website was a very dynamic space. It had, at the, at the time that I did the research in, in the space, it had over 15,000 members from all over the world. Um, and there were these really interesting conversations online about who had ownership of Jamaican culture and Jamaican representation. So you have tourists who have been to Jamaica, um, you know, last week talking to Jamaican diasporic peoples who live throughout the UK, throughout the US, who haven't been back home in almost 15 years, right? And them kind of teasing out and talking through the politics of Jamaica and its place within the diaspora. Um, So the website was a very central um, site for staying connected to this this place that kept them sane when they couldn't financially afford to get back and be connected to one another. 
Yeah, I really appreciated the way that this book integrated the sort of online component with the in-person, multi-sided, um, what we might think of as more traditional ethnographic research, because, you know, in the 21st century, it's only becoming more and more important, I think, for us to integrate that study of what people do online with what they do in their day-to-day -day lives offline. Um, so I think your book is a really good example of how that can be done, um, even with folks who maybe don't spend a ton of time online, but they found this particular website to be really central for them. No, I was just going to say um, what surprised me about this group was kind of their presence online. I mean, again, it's, it's asking your listeners to go back to a moment where we all weren't attached to our phones in the way that we are now. Um, they were to be in your late 40s and early 60s and to be so technology technologically savvy and present online wasn't something that was kind of assumed um, back then. And so, you know, to be on the Internet, to be moderators for these online conversations um, really allowed them access to like the newest dance hall music from Jamaica, the newest slang. There was a lot of cultural exchange that was happening on the website that because of their age, people just didn't assume that they were into or had access to. And so them being in this uh, on this website and in dialogue with other people um, and then technologically savvy was kind of important at the time. Yeah, it's really important. When we think about the internet and message boards in um, the sort of mid-2000, first decades of the 2000s, like 2003, 2004, five, when you were doing this research, um, the people that we think about as internet users at that time are not middle-aged black women, right? We think about sort of like young white men who are nerds <laughs> of a particular type. But yeah, but yeah, your book really documents that like uh, the media ecology of the internet, even in that relatively early um, period of message boards and social media, um, was always more diverse than we might have imagined it to be. Exactly. And even, I mean, to be doing, when I was doing virtual ethnography back then, I'll admit I had no idea what I was doing because it was such kind of a new thing. Um, so there wasn't a ton of research or instruction on how to do virtual ethnography. Um, and so I kind of made it up as I went and, you know, tried to archive particular really useful threads. Um, these women wrote amazing organic, what I call organic ethnographic trip reports of their trips to Jamaica, where they kind of not only told people where they were going and giving insights on the places that they were visiting, but having really good analysis of their privilege and power during these trips. Um, and so when I was doing virtual ethnography, I kind of just had to create my own system for how to do this. And now looking back, especially, you know, as the book came out last year, reading it, and thinking, oh, there's privacy issues that I probably would have thought about differently nowadays because we now we know so much more about the internet and social media and privacy. Um, there's things I probably would have done differently. There's ways I probably would have included them differently because now we have access to the internet and they have access to um, social media in ways that maybe could have made it a more collaborative and collective project. Um, but at the time, I just didn't. I hadn't wrapped my mind around all those things. And so now virtual ethnography and social media are changing so quickly um, that I send all my love and energy to those who are doing virtual ethnography right now. 
Thank you. Um, I could use some of that myself because I'm trying to do similar things um, in terms of just integrating, you know, the sort of virtual ethnography with the in-person ethnography. And even though I'm, you know, benefiting from your wisdom and the work of other scholars who have done this before me, I still feel like, oh, no, what to do? This is so complex. And, and definitely the issues of privacy and ethics um, really come to the forefront of my mind because folks often assume that what they say on the internet is public in a certain way and yet private in a certain way. Um, and that's really important for us to think through as researchers. And I think that in your work, particularly since you're dealing with um, truly very deep personal things, emotions, um, desires, feelings of happiness, um, ways of coping with the burdens of racism. Um, yeah, it's really important to um, to have a sensitivity to the folks that you're working with. And I think that comes through really admirably in your book that um, you're thinking a lot about what it means to be an ethical researcher, um, particularly toward the end of the book when you talk about how difficult it was to kind of leave the field um, and to figure out a way to draw that period of your life to an end as you were sort of moving on in your PhD program and in your work. Um, is there anything you want to tell us about that? Oh my goodness, that could be a whole nother book. Um, <laughs> I I had a ton of writing anxiety. Um, I do generally, which I talk about publicly because I think sometimes as academics, um, particularly in front of the students that we're training, we're not very honest about what it takes to create um, an ethnography, a monograph like this. And so I have generally speaking, just a, a general sense of anxiety around writing. Um, but two things contributed and maybe aggravated that anxiety a little bit more was that one being a black woman ethnographer who cared very much about the community that I was studying. That was my community, right? That I, um, in some ways, and we have all the literature and anthropology about insider outsider and kind of native anthropology or, you know, all the different terms that we use for being um, part of the community that you're studying. I felt a really deep, sense of responsibility and commitment to how I was representing their stories. Um, and then, you know, and who my audience was, was I speaking to them? Was I not? Um, and so that kind of the, what you, you were saying about the sensitivity that I felt, um, I, I, I'm glad <laughs> that um, in your interpretation that my sensitivity around that comes out, but there was a lot of anxiety about how to represent that community. Um, and also um, how to contribute to anthropology and the larger literature on Black women without making, without contributing more to our stereotypes or making us very rigid and static. I mean, these women are super dynamic. Um, I don't know that that, you know, that, that energy comes onto the page, but I wanted um, people to understand how really difficult it can be to live at the intersection of racism and sexism, which are truly irrational systems of oppression and how Black women manage to make sense of their lives and live with some joy and leisure in the context of that irrationality. Um, so yeah, in the conclusion, I spent some time talking about my some of the, the barriers or battles that I had to go through to write the text. Um, and even now, as I hear from different women you know, some of their frustrations or or even anger around what's represented in the book. 
Um, I understand it. I get it. I think it's something that most ethnographers have to experience and deal with. But when you're a part of that community and when you are dedicated to showing them in a light that's really useful, um, I think it can be a little tougher. Yep. I hear that these ethical dilemmas of writing and representation seem to only get uh, more complicated over time um, as we pay more and more attention to them. But I think that's absolutely part of being a responsible um, anthropologist or writer in the 21st century. So thanks for giving us a really rich example of how to do that. And for our listeners, I want to highlight the fact that um, I think this book does a really good job of showing the dynamism and the agency of the women that you're writing about. And just by turning some of the tropes on their head, right? Like so many um, analyses of Black women's lives in the United States, like focus on narratives of suffering, narratives of trauma, narratives of just being very burdened and having lots of cares and responsibilities. And of course, those narratives exist for a good reason, as it is incredibly difficult to live at the intersection of racism and sexism in the United States. But your book takes us in a just a very different direction, in a very exciting direction by saying, you know what, let's let's think about pleasure. Let's think about leisure. Let's think about what these women do for themselves, to enjoy themselves, to express their own desires and to chase their own dreams. And that was a really um, exciting lens through which to read the stories of these women's lives. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, You know, I imagined that folks in, you know, who study transnationalism and diaspora and Black feminist studies um, would find, even critical race studies would find this book interesting. Um, I was super dedicated to uh, kind of showing that while the African diaspora in particular is very much wrapped up with narratives of pain and suffering um, because of the history of the transatlantic slave trade, that, um, you know, difference is super essential to diaspora. We're not all the same. We don't experience our different countries and our different cultures the same way, but also pleasure, joy, and happiness are also part of the diaspora. Um, And if you look at poetry, if you look at any of the art that comes out of diaspora, music, um, you know, even some of our theoretical frameworks that come from being able to be diasporic subjects and, and from that positionality, there's great joy and happiness that can be present um, in how people make sense of their lives and meanings of their lives in the context of that. And so this idea, sometimes when I talk about my, my research, people will say, oh, Black women and happiness, isn't that an oxymoron? And I think that in itself is a very troubling statement. And the idea that we don't have images or narratives that are popular that that put Black women in connection and in relationship with happiness, that those things actually feel like they are opposites of one another is a problem. And so for me, Black women expressing happiness, pursuing it, um, telling their narratives of how they experience joy really is a political project and kind of a, a form of resistance against white supremacy and patriarchy. Yeah, for sure. It's reminding me, and I'm not going to get the quote right, but of something that Audre Lorde said about um, caring for myself is an act of radical um, political resistance. And Right. Uh, self-care is an act of yeah, political yeah, action and resistance. Yeah, that comes across so yeah. well in this book. Um, I just want to highlight for our listeners, this 
book, I think, will be of interest to folks in a lot of different fields, Black feminist studies, transnational and diaspora studies, African diaspora studies in particular, um, anthropology of tourism and mobility, anthropology of North America and the Caribbean, affect studies. There's there's a lot here for everyone. It's really rich. Um, but if you had to pick one thing that you feel like is kind of the book's most important theoretical contribution, what is the one thing that you would hope readers would take away from this book? Um, and they're, well, they're connected. So maybe they can kind of combine as one. One is um, I really do feel like the power of Black women's stories um, and the effective lives of Black women are super important not only for the fields that imagine that those things are important, <laughs> like it's larger for the theoretical analysis. It's, it's important for the academy. It's important for how we think about politics um, on the ground. Um, there's so much erasure and neglect around Black women's experiences in the world, but particularly in this country. And my research and my teaching and my service um, has always been committed to this idea that if we centered Black women's lives and stories, there's so many things that we would see that we haven't been able to see because of this neglect and erasure of Black women. And so for the book, I think the book does a a really good job at showing that if you center Black women's stories in the context of transnationalism, um, in the context of affect theory, in the context of diaspora, um, you really learn a lot about how race um, and gender operate across national borders. Um, and the, the, the information that we need is sometime in how we feel these things, like how they act on our bodies, how we feel about them, how we make meaning of them. So emotion is important. <laughs> and emotion is political is a, is a main theoretical concept of the book, but that Black women's emotions are particularly political and important. Absolutely. And I think that those did fit together very well as one thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. I'm going to ask like a slightly selfish question, but it's not just for me. I'm sure many of our listeners are in this situation. Um, so like many first books, like many first monographs, this is based on the research you did for your doctoral dissertation. And so I was wondering if you could describe uh, the process of turning that dissertation into a book, despite all the writing anxiety, which many of us have, um, and what advice would you give to early career folks who are working toward that same goal? Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> so I think um, when you're an undergrad, your job is kind of to take all the data you're learning from everyone and and, and learn it well, um, so that you can become a critical participant observer of the world. And when you're a graduate student, your job is to do some of that, but also kind of create your new interpretation or new perspective using that data and kind of creating a new thing and becoming an expert on something, which was a really difficult process for me. Um, My advisor would tell me all the time, you know, you're supposed to be becoming an expert on Black women and happiness. You're not supposed to be regurgitating the things that other people say, or you shouldn't be freaking out if no one else can say this. Like, you are the person who's supposed to say this. That always freaked me out. Um, Moving from the dissertation to the book is you recognizing that you are an expert on something and then figuring out and having the freedom to figure out how you want to represent it in the way that makes sense to you and pick the audience you want to speak to. And so I think some of the tough part about moving from a dissertation to a book is that the dissertation is really 
um, a project that you imagine is for your dissertation committee, right? The audience that's going to give you that degree. Um, but that shift to the first monograph is you identifying for yourself who you are as a scholar and researcher, who you want to speak to, and which conversations you want to be involved in. And those may not be the same things or the same idea conceived of that as a graduate student. Um, there's an identity transformation or process that needs to happen, and it can be a tough one. Um, so I know that's not exactly about the writing, but I think sometimes we underestimate the type of identity transformation that needs to happen from someone who's a graduate student to someone who is writing a book. There's there's different things that are happening and maybe different responsibilities of the text. Um, so with that said, I would say for your first monograph, I know people feel a lot of pressure to do a particular thing. They imagine it's going to be like the thing that is their defining of their the def, the defining thing of their career. I would say free yourself up from it um, and write it the way you want to write it. Um, and I wish I had done that earlier in the process. I probably would have made the writing the book a little bit easier. Yeah, it's true that one book doesn't have to be everything. Um, you just have to kind of get it out there into the world. And I'm really grateful that you did with this book. Um, so I guess that actually um, segues for me into what's usually our last question here on the New Books Network, which is, um, what are you working on currently now that you have finally released this one out into the world? Um, what's next for you? Um, so, uh, you know, since this book came out, I'm glad that this book came out when it did, even though I delayed it <laughs> for all that anxiety, um, because there's so much that has happened politically that's around emotion and affect and self-care and politics. You know, we have um, the three co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement who very much centered it as a feminist, um, queer-centered and self-care and emotional wellness and healing justice-centered movement. We have the amazing work of Tarana Burke and the Me Too movement. And again, centering very much trauma and emotion and the experiences of Black women um, and what we can learn from those things. Um, so those political movements and this previous book led me to think about two things, and I'm, I'm working on them um, concurrently. One is about plantation politics and campus rebellions in higher ed, and really looking at the past four to five years of activism on campuses that have been um, encouraged and driven by the Black Lives Matter movement, and the ways that universities have responded to those different um, campus rebellions. Um, and the argument of that book, it's an edited volume that I'm co-editing with Dan Squire and Frank Tewitt. Um, and that volume is really uh, about how universities that were created through plantation labor um, and even a word of plantations themselves um, have continued to use tools and mechanisms of those plantations to shut down um campus rebellions in the current moment. And so by recognizing that, we're trying to figure out how do we get free in higher ed if we recognize that history and that contemporary experience. The other project is about what I call radical honesty, which is my a teaching approach, um, my pedagogical approach. Um, and it's an idea that centers emotion in the classroom. Um, and so thinks deeply about 
how professors and students and instructors and folks who are teaching in classrooms and higher ed are not robots, <laughs> that we have emotions, that we have identities, that we have experiences. And when you're teaching things in the classroom, those things usually show up, even though um, we are taught that emotion is irrational and that theory and, and um, analysis should be kind of sterile. Um, it's really much more easier and better for us to learn if we're honest about the emotions that show up in the classroom. And so Radical Honesty is a book on that. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to reading both of those and thinking more about how we can get free in higher ed. Actually, as we're talking, I'm here at the University of Virginia, which is where I did my PhD, and I'm back for a visit. But yeah, thinking a lot about the history and the present and the future of this institution um, in that context. Yes. I've been to, I went to UVA um, earlier or late last year and it was an amazing um, talk and I had a great conversation there. But what struck me so deeply (laughs) by walking on that campus was the profound sense of history that is immediate um, when you walk on that campus. So that's a that's a yeah, kind of strong yeah. place to do some of this. All work. right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing this book with us. Thank you for the projects that you have forthcoming that we're all excited to read now. Um, is there anything else that you want to say or highlight that we haven't been able to touch on? Um, not other than thank you all for supporting the book and learning about the research. I really appreciate being able to talk to you all today. All right. Thank you so much, Bianca. That was my interview with Dr. Bianca Williams about her new book, The Pursuit of Happiness, Black Women, Diasporic Dreams, and the Politics of Emotional Transnationalism from Duke University Press in 2018. I'm Dana Dennis, and thanks for listening to this episode of New Books in Anthropology.